All right, we're back. Here, here it is. It is Branching Factor episode 007. We've made it this far. Very, very excited. I'm your host, Tommy Thompson. And of course, joining me today is our own uh, shaken but not stirred secret game development agent. It is Quang. How are you doing, sir? Hello there. Oh, I'm doing all right, actually. Um, mostly stressed, mostly working busy hard, um, but you know, surviving, which is the main thing. So, sounds, sounds about same um how how you doing with the heat actually because uh, we're recording this uh the british oh, summertime has started and uh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so for those who don't know the, the uk isn't designed to deal with the heat very well at all no um uh, our homes are designed to hold the heat in rather than uh aircon we don't have aircon basically so you know, tough. funnily enough, I was I was just chatting about this. We have um one of the studios I'm working for, we have a lot of folk who are out in the US, but we also have folk who are out in Asia. And they were like, Why don't you have this? Like, you know, have you not got like a ceiling fan or have you not got air conditioning or something? And I was like, Yeah, like this is the problem with like sorry, we're completely derailing this this podcast by just talking about British housing. But like British, British. homes aren't very are rubbish. They're not very good yeah. at keeping the heat in that they generate. So in the winter, your house gets cold too easily. But also, like heat that's coming from the outside, it doesn't keep that out. So in the summer, they turn into, you know, death traps. And so, yeah, um, we're not even hitting the, the hottest part of the year yet. I think it's only like low, th- it hit like 32 Celsius or something, which for our yeah, American friends, that's yeah. like 80 Fahrenheit, low 80s. <laughs> like last summer, we had it, we broke, f- we, we set a, uh, a record congratulations britain you know we set a record courtesy of uh um climate change uh where we hit 41 so it was about 100 and change fahrenheit 100 plus fahrenheit that was not fun i had tin foil over all my windows i look like a proper psychopath um <laughs> denying all the light. anyway but yes this is the branching factor podcast where we're here because it's another gaming podcast because we figured there isn't enough already but we're here to de- demystify all things about games in a kind of slightly intelligent and hopefully entertaining way. And so this week for this episode or this month for this episode, we were, we're coming back to talking about retro games, um, particularly with Quang when we had our one-to-one episode back when the podcast started. We were, look, we were talking about your experiences and critically a lot of the work you're doing in Game Boy games and homebrew building your own games shipping your own games and you're you're knee deep in it right now as i yeah. recall How, how's it going yeah. how's it going right now oh we're getting there uh it's a slow struggle um one of the big things with uh development on the old systems is how the limitations uh every time you think you're getting somewhere you've run out of memory here and so you have to shuffle <laughs> a bunch of code from here to there that upsetting the code base and then you have a bit more space to work with, and then you add more stuff, and then you run out of code to get uh, space again, and you're constantly, constantly shuffling code back and forth, trying not to upset things so they don't fall to pieces. It's like a big game of Jenga, really. <laughs> and it, it, it's such a, it is a kind of a different... Um, ver, it's a different reality versus working on contemporary hardware. Like some of the stuff I've been doing recently where... We are thinking about, oh, well, if we want to port this game to Switch, we need to set these kind of technical benchmarks for ourselves. Actually, like there was a prototype that we were working on um, over at Spilt Milk Studios that we were looking to pitch for funding. And we actually were working on making sure getting that run on a Steam Deck smoothly at like high frame rate. But these are computational powerhouses versus the the, the types of hardware like you know you, you're working on um because well you're you're on the game boy <laughs> which is like what 30 odd years old at this point and so 
funnily enough, this actually brings us to our guests we have on the podcast this week. Uh, Quang was able to reach out and convince. Um, so we've got the Bitmap Bureau are coming to join us. It's Mike Tucker and Gavin Bell from over at the Bitmap Bureau, who are an indie game studio based here in the UK, um, who have done a whole like selection of really interesting work. Uh, starting out with their first, they've done a, I'm trying to think, it's like five games I think they've done since 2017. Uh, they did ATA Heroes and Ninja Showdown. They're probably most well known for Xenocrisis, uh, which was kicked, which came out in 2019, but it was kickstarted to the tune of around 70, 75,000 pounds. Um, but what was interesting about it was that it was targeting the Sega Mega Drive, uh, which for also for our American friends, that's the Sega Genesis. Um, so this is a very old piece of hardware. Now, subsequently, this game has then been released on not just, uh, it's been released on contemporary platforms. You can play it on the PlayStation 4 and 5. You can play it on the Xbox One and the Xbox Series S and X. It's on the Nintendo Switch. But they shipped it to the Mega Drive. Then they also shipped it to the Dreamcast, the PS Vita, the Neo Geo, the Nintendo 64. Like, it's an absolutely bonkers concept. And so, uh, yeah, the team were, were um, happy enough to come down and have a chat with us uh, about their experiences. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing what they have to say. Um, yeah, like, Quang, how did, how did you actually meet, like, uh, Mike? And I guess it was Matt as well, who's, like, the technical director. Yeah, so uh, actually I ran into Mike uh, at one of the uh, gaming shows. I think it was EGX in Birmingham. Uh, we were chatting. Um, I was chatting away to a bunch of other indie devs who were showcasing there. So when I was showcasing our my old game, Mau Mau Castle, uh, I did so many events; it was unreal. Probably over sixty-five events with uh, Mau Mau Castle. And um, you would go to the local bar after the event just to wind down and, and chat with the other guys. And uh, some guy taps me on the shoulder and goes, "Hey, uh, you're Quang, aren't you?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm Quang." And he goes, "Oh, uh, I, I've seen all your stuff because uh, I'm quite well known in the uh, retro gaming scene for collecting and and, and owning all these consoles." Um, but yeah, he, so we, me and Matt, uh, me and Mike, sorry, me and Mike, start chatting about all the retro stuff, and I had no idea who he was at the time. Um, but as we got chatting, then he was talking about oh, how they're um, going to be making stuff for Mega Drive because they had just done Game Jam and uh, it was just then we just got super nerdy about the whole thing and, and making retro games in a modern time. You know, just thinking about um, meeting people at events, you know, your your phone library, like your your camera library, does that whole. Hey, do you remember this happened X number yeah. of years ago? So in the past week, I've had my phone remind me that I was at E3 ten years ago, and it's like, yeah. all right, well that's cool. But actually, the thing I was more fond of was I kept seeing photographs of the Norwich Gaming Festival. Oh, um, yeah. Which I think that's probably one of the first times that you and I really got to hang out quite a bit was at Norwich because you were showing yeah. Mau Mau and we had sure footing there. And you know what? I really miss... Um, I don't know if... I don't miss going to the big ones. Like, funnily enough, I went back <laughs> to like WASD. I was at GDC and stuff like that. But like, I don't... I miss the little indie events. Like, I'm yeah. hoping that there's those are those are coming back strong i think in the next year or so after after the pandemic and everything else has calmed down a little but um yeah like i know norwich is dead now which it made me sad i was like oh man those were some good times some good times um it's mostly chicken wings now that i think about it <laughs> but it, it, again it comes down to the, the social things it, so it wasn't necessarily going there to show your game it was more to hang out with other developers and, and, and yeah and that was a big part of it 
that that was well, that was why I loved Norwich. Like there was other there was bigger events we went to for the purposes of showing your game because you wanted to get attention on it. Like going to like EGX Rest or the main EGX or even Insomnia or something like that. Mm. Like those are much larger scale. That was also there was more chance that you actually bumped into biz dev people. Um, yeah. like literally interactions with like Xbox and Nintendo I had when I was at EGX, but no, like, um, Norwich was a, Norwich was just a social. It was, it was good fun. Like actually full yeah. disclosure, I did a bunch of additional work for <laughs> the festival that I often got paid to do, but like I then stuck around and did the rest of demoing our game just cause we were having fun and just the amount of developers we met at that event alone that I'm still bumping into years later who are thankfully yep. still in the industry and still doing well for themselves. Uh, that's that warms, warms this old, this old heart. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, let's get cracking. Let's, let's jump into our interview. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break and then you'll be hearing from myself and Quang while also hanging out with Mike and Gavin, uh, which will be happening straight away. If you support us on the AI and Games Patreon. If you go to aiengames.com forward slash Patreon, you get to listen to the podcast ad-free, you get to submit questions to us through our Discord server, and you get a bunch of bonus content as well. But for everyone else, get ready to listen to a couple of wonderful commercials that were probably done in my voice. Hey all, Tommy here with a quick plug for an additional way you can support and engage with Branching Factor and everything else happening at AI and Games. The new AI and Games blog is hosted over on Substack, the popular newsletter website. You can catch up with every episode of AI and Games, including written versions of each of our main episode releases, plus every episode of Branching Factor is also available for you to listen there as well. By signing up with a free subscription, you guarantee that every update on everything I'm working on is sent directly to you. You don't have to manage different apps or social media platforms to keep in the loop. Plus, you can also support AI and Games as a paid subscriber on Substack from as little as $5 a month. And with that, you get access to additional bonus content, including early access to new episodes of AI and Games, ad-free episodes of Branching Factor, our monthly newsletter, and recordings from community meetings as we discuss future content coming down the pipeline. To subscribe, head on over to aiengames.com to find out even more, or search for AI and Games on your Substack reader. And we're back, and this time we've got our guest with us. Uh, please welcome Mike and Gavin from the Bitmap Bureau. Uh, as we've discussed already, the Bitmap Bureau team you guys have been working on a whole bunch of really interesting kind of very um, games inspired by a lot of like classic stuff dating back, I think, to all of our collective childhoods, uh, which is maybe sharing a little bit of our, our average age around here. But also, I think what's most interesting um, is also that you've been shipping it to half of the consoles that we actually played uh, back in the day. Um, so, yeah, Mike, Gavin, um, first of all, thank you very much for joining us here on Branching Factor. Very excited to meet you both. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, tell us a little bit about Bitmap Bureau. How how did we get here? Like, how do you end up even getting started founding a company like this and moving in this particular direction for the type of games that you're making? Um, well, I could go all the way back to '95 when I joined the industry, but that's, <laughs> that's a very long story. So I'll probably go back to our previous studio where uh, that was Megadev, and we were developing Flash and Steam games, and um, yeah, we realized we were making 2D 
pixel art, sort of traditional arcade titles. And um, yeah, my, my old colleague, Matt Cope, he was uh, interested in getting back into the industry. Uh, and he's an expert in cross-compilation and porting. So he was able to get our latest game, which was HGA Heroes, onto Switch, PlayStation, Xbox, and Steam, and all that. Um, and yeah, then we had a, I think we made another Steam game, Ninja Showdown, which did okay. But um, yeah, during a game jam, we thought we'd have a go at uh, making a Mega Drive game in the space of 48 hours. It was more like 20 hours, really, in real time. But um, yeah, we managed to bash out a, a very simple horizontal shooter. and. Um, no one at the game jam paid any interest in it at all, but to us it was like, oh wow, you know, we, we could potentially make a, a decent Mega Drive game ourselves. And um, yeah, we've noticed that uh, Matt Phillips, who you might know of, I think he was Traveller's Tales previously, but he made um, Tanglewood uh, for the Mega Drive and successfully kickstarted that. So yeah, we thought we'd try and follow suit, uh, do our own Kickstarter, which succeeded. And yeah, we just realised we had a lot more fun making a Mega Drive game than, say, a, a traditional Steam game. So um, that was our new focus, really. But with Matt's uh, technology and know-how, we were also able to bring those Mega Drive games to um, uh, modern platforms as well. So and and then it expanded from there in, into Dreamcast, Neo Geo, uh, N64, you know, you, you name it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's how we all got started, really, and uh, that's now our, our niche, if you like. Yeah, I think it's 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 really interesting. Um, I'm going to, for the purposes of just of briefly mentioning this, I'm going to quickly jump back on and have a look at Xenocrisis over on Steam, because I was just, I was looking at the number of platforms that it got shipped on, and I was like, this is like reading the, the, the like platform list for Doom's Wikipedia page. Um, so it, it lists here, we've got the Sega Mega Drive or the Genesis for our American friends, uh, Linux, Mac OS, Windows, the Nintendo Switch, PS4, Xbox One, Dreamcast, PlayStation Vita, the Evercade and the Evercade VS, the Neo Geo, the Neo Geo CD, the Nintendo 64 and the GameCube. Yeah, and um, we've also got PlayStation 1 and Game Boy Advance ports almost ready to go. <laughs> uh, and Gab's working on something top secret, that, you know, top secret platform that we can't possibly talk about. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're, we're not done yet. And, and Matt's also got some other platforms lined up. So, um, yeah, I think he's keen to hit every platform under the sun um, just, to, just to be the first, really. And... Um, but yeah, once you've done one platform, it, it then means you can bring other games to those platforms. So um, it's it's a worthwhile investment, I think. Yeah, like <clears throat> one of the things I was I was interested in from a technical perspective is, so when you start with this, like you said, like you know you've already got some experience on like uh, cross-platform development and porting to other platforms. Like, how are you even thinking about? designing or implementing this at a technical level i'm assuming this is all running off your own proprietary engine that you've built uh for the purposes of this because it's not exactly like unity has a sega mega drive uh like plug-in available <laughs> for it. um yeah that's right i mean initially it was a lot of guesswork really we we kind of lagged it <laughs> we had to make sure but well, i was designing the game but i, I just prototyped it in flash very quickly and um yeah, Matt was looking over my shoulder the whole time saying, you know, be careful with the number of sprites you got flying around there. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen on Mega Drive. So, um, yeah, we ended up with two code bases, uh, one in uh, Hacks 
um, and then another in uh, C, right? C and assembler. <laughs> yeah, it'll all be in C. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably ninety-five percent C, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, really, Matt uh, did all the hard work of getting the game onto the Mega Drive. And, um, yeah, Gav can probably tell you a bit about the some of the difficulties that that involves, you know, in terms of sprites and DMA. Yes. And it's not really an engine like modern engines. The games are so simple. It's just pushing sprites around. So once you've got a basic thing, pushing sprites, it's quite straightforward to then get it onto another platform. You just have a hardware abstraction layer and you just uh, push it to yeah. that relevant hardware so fortunately the games are so simple in a way that it's not that much work to do yeah <laughs> no, it, you know, it's, we have we make it for a simple platform so uh we we know the limits i, I don't think we'll get it working on, on old game boy but yeah mostly space well, I think, uh, as, someone who, as someone who works on the game boy um i found working on that platform the, the most important thing is knowing the hardware not necessarily the programming of it, it's understanding its limitations, understanding when you can write to the hardware, when you can, what you can, what limits you can push it around with. You know, it, it's it's understanding how it actually just renders the whole screen um, more so than things. That, and that's where the problems lie. I guess as you get further down the generations of consoles, they bring in bitmap modes and stuff, where, so it's, it's a lot easier to render a whole screen. Whereas in the early consoles, you're dealing with individual sprites um, limitations. So a sprite tile is usually an eight by eight pixel tile and then putting them together to make other sprites and then same with the backgrounds and things like that. So um, porting from, I guess, from generation to generation, the, the, the earlier you go, the more difficult it gets, I believe. Yeah, well, I don't think we're going to go back as far as, uh, as uh, Game Boy or a uh, monster <laughs> system or anything like that or uh, C64. But, oh, those would be cool. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> I'll have to see. It's probably about as far back as we go. I think. Yeah. Like speaking, yeah, yeah. speaking of, like, how much you were saying there that Matt had been was kind of instrumental in that. Is is that also what then influenced what platforms you targeted? Because you said there, like, oh, we're going to make a Mega Drive s game. Is that yeah. also knowing maybe in the back of Matt's head, like, kind of understanding how the Mega Drive works? Because, like, why that versus, say, the the SNES, for example, like the Super Nintendo or Super Famicom, I guess, depending on where you where you buy your consoles. I think it was initially down to the SGDK, wasn't it? Um, yeah. That made life a lot easier. So there were a nice set of dev tools that you could use and um, using C compiler. So you could get a game up and running on Mega Drive quite simply, quite quickly, versus uh, something like on the SNES where the, the tool sets aren't as, um, as well developed. You, know, so you, you have to write the whole thing in assembly or take a very poor C compiler. Oh, good. Having flashbacks. Yeah, I found that as well. Choosing the platform is, is really down to the documentation that's out there because you, you don't have the official documentation of these consoles. You're literally taking what the community's put together. And the MegDrive community, Homebrew community, has really uh, matured really well in recent years. Any particular reason for why that is, do you think? from anyone here like i'm i'm because it's interesting to me as someone who's not actually programmed for anything prior to like a i don't know windows 98 pc beef or never shipped anything like the, the the most modern console i've shipped to is the xbox one um or the yeah the youngest console i've ever shipped to is the xbox one so like for me like this is really interesting territory but like 
do you think it is just down to community and how much information they can gather? And that's why, like, say, the Mega Drive is now arguably more better supported. Yeah, I think well, for me, sorry, go ahead, please. For me, the, the Mega Drive shares a processor which is used a lot across other platforms. And so you've right, got okay. Nigo, Atari, VST, Neo Geo, sure. all running all running the same same processors. Ah, okay. Whereas the SNES was, uh, was a little custom, so it was a lot harder to, uh, so maybe not as much enthusiasm behind developing all the tools for that. So that's what, anyway, sorry for interrupting. No, exactly what I was going to say. The, the 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 Nintendo uses such custom chips. It's harder for them people to understand the map. It look at the emulation uh, software out there at the moment. The, the most mature ones are the ones that have been uh, worked on the most. And Nintendo took a while to, to catch up um, yeah. when the NES and the Mega Drive were out uh, a lot sooner than that. Oh, I've yeah. learned something. Thanks for that. <laughs> this is as soon as you said like oh shared CPU is that like, ah okay right I'm with you but no I didn't know any of that. That's very cool. Um, so I guess, so one of the things I was chatting about with Quang when we, we did our one-to-one -one episode like a few months back was we were talking about then this, so you've got the challenge of, of shipping to these older platforms. And then of course, we've kind of discussed a little bit of that, but you've also then got the challenge of just doing physical production for older systems as well. And that comes in a number of forms, whether it's the logistics of actually shipping the damn thing um uh, but also the project quality like you have to ship the game and you can't like you're not going to ship out a, a patch cartridge like three months down the line um i mean how, well, how, how much does that influence like the development <laughs> overall yeah, you've got to be pretty secure or um, confident in your product and make sure it's been tested thoroughly before it goes out the door yeah. Um, but then you, you also have all these kind of uh, potential manufacturing woes and you can get things that come in that aren't up to quality. And so sometimes you think it's better to do it in-house because you can kind of manage it and think the, the market's a bit niche. So it's not like we have to do hundreds of thousands of units. You know, it's it's, it's manageable, but it can be a little bit tedious. Yeah, so it's pretty painful. And um, yeah, we've wasted you know, so many hours and so many you know, dollars on you know, trying out different um, manufacturers and, you know, like PCB manufacturers and case manufacturers. And, and then, yeah, once you've got it all right, you've still got to make the stuff yourself. And, yeah, that's that's no mean feat. You've got to write the – you've got to flash the game onto the PCB, get the PCB into the cartridge, screw it down, put the label on, Ooh. put that in the box, put the sleeve in the box, put the manual in the box. <laughs> um, I know chuck some freebies in like postcards, uh, then wrap it up, um, put the sticker on it, make sure you get the right sticker. Then there's the customs invoice. And then, then you've got to put it in your bag. Then you've got to tag the bag in the right way for the Royal Mail. Uh, then you've got to give it to the Royal Mail and uh, then you've got to notify the customer, give them their tracking details. Uh, compared to, say, you know, a digital game on Steam where customer gets it right away and <laughs> that's it. There's no, there's no fuss. So, yeah, introduces a lot of headaches, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, we've had a, a good few hundred hours, I think, in the warehouse just manufacturing stuff. So, yeah, um, but yeah, we, we've got it down pretty well now. It's it's a lot smoother than it used to be, uh, but I don't I, I don't enjoy that side of the job. It's the exact same for me when we were putting the, the our last cable game together, uh, having to literally fold every box, fold every manual, and put them all together. 
Um, this is why our, our new game, I've, we've gone with a distributor to deal with that instead. So hand off the logistics to someone else to worry about making the game. The wise move. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, as as Mike was explaining it, I could kind of see the light in your eyes go out. I was like, all right, this is clearly the bit you don't enjoy doing <laughs> as part of the overall production. Just got to put the thing in the thing and then that's got to go in that and then and that's one copy right how many more are we going to do yeah. <laughs> the first few hours is fine or then the first day but then you realise how slow you're going and how much stuff is has to be done and you just think okay this is a grind this is a proper grind that we're going to yeah. have to do yeah so, we, we have taken on people to help us out but yeah we, we still get involved because yeah yeah more hands make light work and all that um but yeah, it's it's probably the worst part of um, making a retro game. You, you do have to get stuck in with the physical manufacturing side of things. And it's, uh, like, you, like you say, like that first one that comes that's done, and you're like, look at that, this is amazing, yeah, yeah. this is so cool. And then after the fifteen hundredth, where you're like, I don't <laughs> put it in the envelope. We got to get it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, like. So how, I mean, it sounds then like sort of there's a series, a point in production where the game is done and it's like, hey, everybody tools down. We're off to the warehouse now. Time to uh, get them all in envelopes and get them all shipped out. Like, it, how, how does that feel, I guess, for yourselves? Because unlike so many other developers, you know, if you look at, say, a contemporary game um, that comes out on modern platforms as a physical release. You're actually there for every single part of it, from ideation through to the physical product being sent to the customer. Um, like, I mean, what? It, it just sounds baffling to me. It sounds like such a unique perspective that there's very, very few. I mean, I think we're, we're fortunate to have Quang here, but I can't imagine there's many other developers that can share in that experience. Like, how many have you ever, have you met? Is there like a, I don't know, retro game developers anonymous? <laughs> Where you all hang out and lament sticking games in, in envelopes. But yeah, I can't imagine that'll appeal to that many people. <laughs> you know, when someone opens the box, one of our games, and it's got our own kind of sweat dripping on, you know, little splats and fingerprints on there, and our floors. You know, COVID as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's satisfying to, yeah, to know that you've, you've been involved from, you know, the first line of code to, you know, to actually just put the getting together in the box and sending it um I, I do love that yeah and you're right there can't be many people in the world doing it um it's like a bit of closure as well once you once you're at that stage you know that the product you know the, the it's come to an end that project and so then you're, you're kind of then thinking about what you're going to be working on next mm. so even then when you're kind of making it you think oh yeah i'm going to be doing that next or we can try this thing out it's terrifying at the same time though because yeah. you know at that point you're committed, you're committed, you know, you've written the game to the PCB, it's in the car, it's on its way to customers, and then if there's any problem, then, uh, you know, it could potentially, I wouldn't say sink your company, but it, it could be fatal for some people. Uh, we did have a problem, actually, with, with the uh, Neo Geo version. Um, I think there was um, some discrepancy with the code on the, the flashing machine at the warehouse and the one in the office, and... Um, I think it was one bit that wasn't written, but it meant that the stereo music didn't work on the MVS version. Uh, so oh, wow. yeah, we had to do uh, had to, had to come up with this cart upgrade scheme so that customers could send their cart to various uh, trusted partners in the world to update their cart. So that was an absolute nightmare. Um, but yeah, that's the nature of working on these old platforms, unfortunately. And uh, you were, uh, sorry, go ahead. 
And I think, you know, we're obviously over an age where um, a lot of us grew up with the 8-bit micros, things like that. And that was the homebrew colder scene where that grew from. And watched, we watched people sell games via mail order. But they were doing very much the same thing of, of making their own games, stuffing envelopes and, and sending it out. Uh, I guess duplicating tapes is what they were doing back in the days. Um, so it's great to see that come back around and be part of it in a part. That was part of my childhood. Now I get to be involved in part of that, and and, and as you say, seeing that whole process from cold, uh, first line of cold to physical product coming out. Yeah, like for one of the things that I was thinking about looking particularly. So I mean, uh, you know, for the clarity for the for the audience, like you know, Xenocrisis was was finished in 2019 and it was shipped to multiple platforms over a period of a couple of years. But then you also worked on two other games like uh, Battle Axe and then you had Final Vendetta, which came out last year, um, which is kind of a Final Fight Streets of Rage style game as well. But thinking about Xenocrisis and, and particularly those physical releases, like two things that, <clears throat> that came to my mind is one, you shipped the original Mega Drive version in late 2019 and then you started having, um, and I think also the PlayStation and Xbox versions. Uh, mm. So, and so this was all done, were you, so were you doing this entirely um, independently? Because I noticed, I think, is it Final Vendetta, uh, uh, Numskull Games has published that, whereas Xenocrisis was entirely your own. So... How do you then, so you've now got this interesting challenge of managing how many different branches of the source code? Or like, <laughs> Luckily, just two. Um, yeah, there was my sort of dirty <clears throat> version, if you like. But um, yeah, there's no way that you can take that code and uh, slap it on the Mega Drive. Um, yeah, Matt had to basically rewrite from scratch. And, and then I got involved as well to try and make sure that the yeah, the enemy logic was as close to the original as possible. And then for yeah, all of the different platforms, there's a branch of the uh, the original Mega Drive version. So then uh, Game Boy, PlayStation, all the others, there'll be a, a branch off of it. So if any any fix goes into the core branch, it can then propagate through all of them. It will run um, ultimately the same set of code. It's just the the, the rendering side and the sound triggering side and the input of controllers that come in that there's a hardware abstraction layer but ultimately yeah oh. there's sorry having mild ptsd of trying to handle xbox controller configurations uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I, I guess when because funnily enough like looking at the release dates you did ship on playstation xbox and the switch and this on the same day as the mega drive release um, was... I think they, they were slight they were a bit before really a, a good, i think a few months before uh, because yeah, Matt had a, an accident. Actually, he, uh, he injured his head, uh, suffered concussion. Oh jeez! Um, yeah, it, it took him out of action for a long time, and we weren't even sure if Matt would ever get back to coding. Um, fortunately, he did. But yeah, that pushed the Meg Drive back, uh, probably like a, a good six to twelve months, perhaps. Uh, so yeah, that's why the modern came out first. But it probably helped a bit. We were able to iron out a few bugs and a few balancing issues. And those were carried over to the Mega Drive. Um, but yeah, ideally, it would have been good to get the Mega Drive version out first. But uh, just, yeah, it just wasn't to be. But yeah, luckily, Matt's okay now. Um, that's the main thing. I'm oh, glad to hear it. But yeah, like, from, Matt, was my, Matt was my thought was hang on, you're trying to do lot check on like three platforms. 
modern yeah. platforms as well as trying to put the cartridges in the box um, <laughs> at the same time. And so it's ah, I, I just I'm I'm just I'm generally just bowled away. Let's Sorry, let's just put you? it that way. I shipped to like two two platforms, and I was like, that was too too many. Um, <laughs> whereas you're shipping yeah, to everything at once. Yeah, Matt's um, he's the master of that, really. Yeah, I think we passed lot check first time every time on all of our games. Um, I think we failed once because we had like a tiny Xbox logo on this um, on the control screen, and we weren't you're not allowed to show the Xbox logo, so we had to you know cover it up with a, a couple of pixels. And, uh, <laughs> that's the only reason we failed. So um, yeah, yeah, we've got a pretty good track record of getting products uh, out there. Um, yeah, without too many issues, which is good because every I think every submission costs you a few grand, doesn't it? Or uh, it could take a few more weeks or months. So um, yeah, it's nice to pass first time. Not not there yet. Not there yet, personally. But <laughs> you're talking about um having to steal the controllers. Um, obviously, if you're shipping a game to different platforms, uh, and your initial control scheme scheme was for a Mega Drive, how are you thinking about mapping these controllers to other systems and their controllers? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the most problematic controller was probably the Mega Drive anyway, because it was three buttons. Uh, so yeah, getting that uh, control scheme working on there was quite an interesting challenge. But yeah, once you go to a modern controller, we've got two sticks and yeah, four face buttons, four triggers. Yeah, there's not too many problems really. And, and actually, we were able to adapt a, a, a true sort of dual, make it a true true dual stick shooter, which the Mega Drive version wasn't. Um, unless you're on the six button pad, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I like um, I enjoyed that challenge of making an interesting control scheme for the, for the original Mega Drive pad because it's it's one of my favourite pads still, um, and yeah, I, I still I think um, you know if you, if you can make a, a game work on a three button pad, it, it can certainly work on shouldn't have too many problems on other controllers. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I imagine Game Boy is more of a challenge. You've got, <laughs> you got two buttons. You know, that's, that's a real challenge. Um, yeah. Uh, if, if, you know, they've made ports of Metal Gear Solid and uh, the Tomb Raider games and stuff like that running on a two-button controller, and it's, uh, it's insane what you can do and what you can't do. Um, <laughs> but you have to be, I guess, uh, in, uh, come up with, with amazing, interesting ways to use the, those two buttons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of uh, context-sensitive stuff, I guess. It's all about creative limitation, I guess, and and trying to work around it. Like uh, with regards to like the games, because I've noticed having a look at a lot of the games that you're making, you are very much in keeping with that is a kind of old school, late eighties, early nineties vibe, which I think resonates with a lot of people quite strongly because we're all of that age, and we were, or we were, or of that age that we played those games at some phase in our childhood, like. What is there a design challenge then for yourselves when you're looking at a new project, like going away and doing the research and figuring out this is the correct aspect ratio that we want to try and render the game out in, or like what type of pixel art style we're going for, what type of music are we going for? Like even the like the 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 mechanics and the scope of it, do you feel like you need to still like be like kind of both Xenocrisis and Final Vendetta are kind of very reflective of games of their time. They feel like they could have been picked up in the, in that day rather than being um, more like an act, like other indie games where they are sort of paying an homage to it. You feel like 
like final i was playing final vendetta over the weekend and i'm like this feels like i'm just playing a final fight game um (laughs) and it's but is that like your intent is that you want to try and keep it as authentic to that era as possible Our work here on the Branching Factor podcast is made possible thanks to the good folks who support us on Patreon. As you might know, me, Tommy, the host here of the Branching Factor podcast, I run the AI and Games YouTube channel. I talk about how artificial intelligence works in video games and how AI research is empowered by the use of games. And AI and Games has been supported by our Patreon community for several years now. And it's thanks to them that we receive sponsorship that helps me and the team do more, including spending time with my friends right here on the Branching Factor podcast. Supporters on Patreon get access to a whole bunch of content for the Branching Factor podcast. You get to listen to episodes ad-free and even get to listen to them early before they go live to the wider world. Plus, you can submit questions to the team here on our Discord server, have your name read out in our producer credits, and even get bonus content that doesn't get published elsewhere. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI and games. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AI and games. And a special thanks to all of our patrons for their continued support of everything we're doing right here on Branching Factor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's the era that I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And for me, yeah, classic Capcom, Konami, Sega, Taito, you know, uh, those guys. That they, To me, they, they made the best games, and that's what I try to emulate. Um, and also, I, I pretty much stopped playing games probably in the early 2000s. So I don't know what, I don't even know what should go into a modern game. But um, so, and yeah, but given the consoles that we're making uh, the games for, it, it just feels appropriate that they have that. 80s 90s feel it's yeah it's almost inevitable really given my background and uh, my stubbornness not to play anything beyond 2005 <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's um it's i find it quite refreshing really um because when we're making flash games and steam games yeah there's no limitations there's nothing that says your your game should be so many pixels wide or so many high you know you've got infinite colors you can throw polygons at the screen uh, and do all this and that but it's um actually having uh, be, having limitations, uh, yeah, being having to make a game for a four by three aspect ratio, you know, three hundred twenty pixels across, two hundred twenty four down, you know, sixteen colours per tile or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, it's um, I actually enjoy working to those restrictions, and it kind of informs the design as well. Really, um, you know, the Mega Drive's got a very gritty colour palette, so it seemed appropriate that we make quite a gritty game and yeah, Santa Christ has just fit them all perfectly. And again, with the, the Mega Drive's uh, YM2612 Yamaha sound chip, uh, it's, yeah, it's an absolute uh, beast when it comes to FM synthesis. And uh, we found this Swedish guy called uh, Savage Regime who somehow was making music that I didn't think was possible on a Mega Drive. And I, I, I didn't actually believe it when I got in touch. I just said, yeah, it looks like you're making Mega Drive music, but yeah, is that is that actually the case? And he said, "Oh yeah, it's all genuine." And I said, like, "Oh wow, could you oh, could you write us some music then?" And um, yeah, he he just bashed out a load of tracks in the space of a few months, and uh, yeah, that really um, really helped uh, set the atmosphere and the, the tone and the tempo for the game. Really, 
Uh, and yeah, it all just gelled together. And yeah, especially with Hank Niebog's art, he, he's an absolute pixel master. So lucky to have him on board. And uh, yeah, Catherine Manab there as well on the cutscene art. So it was a it was a good team. And yeah, just just one of those situations where everything just gels together nicely. And um, yeah, we're all really happy with the end product. Amazing stuff. I guess I mean on that note, because you were saying that you're you're very faithful to it. What is I guess for both of you, what is your favourite game of those of that the, the retro era? Like, what's your favourite game? What's your console? I mean, it sounds like Mega Drive might be the console, but what's the what's the? Do we have an answer for that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would if I put it on me. Um, I would uh, go with the Game Boy. The Game Boy, I have so much love for the Game Boy. It was like the first console that was mine, and I didn't have to share with my brothers. Gotcha. Um, and and because it's such a personal console, you take it with you everywhere. Yeah, I, 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 I a huge bond with my Game Boy. Um, as for my favorite game, it has to be Tetris. Tetris is such an incredible game uh, from a gameplay standpoint because obviously it's just a few blocks falling down, um, but it, the game is so, so pure. It's, it's it's literally just, it is what it is. It, you run on any system because it's, it's just, it doesn't need anything fancy bells or whistles. It's it's a pure gameplay-driven game. Um, yeah, so for me, it's Tetris on the Game Boy. Uh, I kind of missed the whole um, the, the consoles. I my, my first machine was an Atari ST, and so I would be playing games on that. So the um, Sim City and uh, some of the Lucas Art games, uh, Monkey Island, things like that. Dungeon Master was cool. Uh-huh. Nice. So uh, yeah, fond, fond memories of Monkey Island and uh, things like that. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I like the. Uh, 68k uh, anything that kind of uh, 68k goes into so that's why I'm happy working on Mega Drive <laughs> and things like that so uh, yeah I, that was for me what about yourself Paul? Um, I think the game appropriate the most hours into much like Quang is um, Street Fighter 2 uh, I know he's played it a lot <laughs> um, but yeah I used to play that uh, religiously every day for hours a day uh, whether I was at college in the recreation centre where they had a machine or, you know, or, or as soon as I got home I'd carry on playing it um, and I made a lot of friends playing it um, and it was I think it's one of the few times like where you see a queue for a video game you know you just don't see that anymore um, and you have these big crowds around the machine and, and there, there was so much um, you know drama <laughs> Watching some of these fights play out, um, yeah, someone actually physically attacks me after I beat them off, um, at, at, on the college machine. But yeah, we became good friends after that. <laughs> we kind of laughed it off. But, um, but yeah, to me, that was that's pretty much video gaming perfection, really. Uh, Capcom at their best. Um, great pixel art, beautiful soundtrack, uh, and gameplay, which yeah, people are still finding little exploits and glitches and tricks in, in in the street fighter games you know 30 whatever it is 30 years on which is amazing really um yeah so street fighter probably an obvious choice but um yeah i i, I still love it today i mean i'm probably with you also for for our audio listeners um mike is wearing a street fighter t-shirt which also might have gave it away a little bit but no i mean i'm 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 in the same boat like actually my <clears throat> is mine's a street fighter 2 turbo specifically um, because also the Super Nintendo was my first, my first console that was that was mine. I used to play games on my dad's Amstrad CPC four six four, and then I got a, an SNES and um, yeah, Street Fighter Two Turbo. Because also again, 
it was a communal thing. There was a handful of places near where I lived where there was an arcade machine. Um, the swimming pool, the local swimming pool had an arcade machine of Street Fighter. And we used to wait, like all these school trips would go to go and do a swim. And then we'd all be waiting for the bus and a handful of us that had like put money in our pocket and be like, you, me, let's go Street Fighter um, and have a couple of rounds. Um, so I made a few enemies in other schools. But uh, yeah, that was a bit... <laughs> But yeah, it's a communal experience. Also, I love, um, for anyone who's picked up Street Fighter 6, I was playing that uh, last week. There is an arcade, there's like an area of the like social hub where they actually have all these um, full arcade machines set up where you can just go and play Street Fighter 2. Oh, wow. In Street Fighter 6. And I was like, oh, that's, that's so nice. Like you can just go over and play that or like Final Fight and like um, Ghouls and Goblins and stuff like oh. that. So it's like, ah, can't be bothered fighting people. I'm just going to sit over here and play Street Fighter 2 for a bit. Um, it's like, put more in. I'll pay DLC. Just put the ROMs in for all the other games and I'll just sit and, I'll sit and spend a lot of time playing old games on this new game. But anyway. Yeah, it's just um, arcade, don't you? That's it. I need an arcade machine. I just, I just keep seeing Quang Street Fighter arcade machine behind me and I'm like, ah, oh, man, I just need a piece of that. That's just, ah. Quang, you and I still yeah. haven't played Street Fighter together yet. Uh, not yeah, we have actually one time. Last remember, time, yeah, last we, time yeah. we were at the Cambridge Computing Museum, and like half the buttons didn't work. Yeah, yeah, and so we kind of we were like both trying to do moves, but I think like my medium punch and like hard <laughs> kick didn't work, and like your heavy punch and medium kick didn't work, and then the two of us are trying to dance around each other. It's not really a match. <laughs> Can't remember who won anyway. I went to a tournament like that, and yeah, um, you, you can jump forwards. <laughs> and we, we, we said to the organizer yeah so how are we gonna how we, how's this gonna work and they said oh if you just switch sides each round that that will even out <laughs> so it was yeah it's annoying when you come across a cab that's not set up properly um especially in a you know a proper competition setup yeah it's yeah. frustrating <laughs> But yeah, I guess looking back, maybe perhaps this is one of our closing questions for you is, is um, looking back then on all those, on those games and having now worked on games that have subsequently launched on the same platforms, does that give you kind of any newfound appreciation for any specific system or specific game that you remember from that era of like, oh my God, how did they do that? Like being able doing it back in the day versus you trying to do it now with like a bit more like um knowledge and with hindsight i guess is there any games that you look back on now with kind of um wonder or newfound appreciation um looking looking at them yeah i do appreciate all the work that went into them but yeah with with, with the hindsight you can look at the, the tools and see how they actually did some of these tricks. So you put them into an emulator and you go, oh, okay, now I see what you did. That was, that was really <laughs> funny. <laughs> and yeah, with the, with the, the tools that we have access to now, you know, we, we were able to recreate these things, but you know, back in the day, you know, they were coming up with these ideas and just throwing it out there, but you know, we can just utilize them as if it was a library now and go, oh, there's an effect from this one. We can, we can pitch that and let's see how they did it. And we just put it into an emulator. So it, I think it'll um, speed up our development and make the game's a little bit more polished now. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's great just looking back at all these things. Specific titles are, I don't know, like Toy Story and Batman on um, SNES, Apple and Mega Drive. There's some pretty nice effects that went on in there. Yeah, um, I think Traveller's Tale did some crazy stuff. Was it the, the Batman and Robin? Yeah. Adventures of Batman and Robin? It was a real technical showcase. Yeah. Um, 
I was a sucker for those things. I, I used to just love the tech. I wasn't so much into the gameplay. I was just wooed <laughs> by shiny things. Like, yeah. So, and I still am. So I was just like, all right, how do they do that? All right, figure it out. Yeah, I was always impressed by uh, some of the RPGs, like the Ultima series and uh, Darth's Tale, uh, Starflight as well, and uh, Elite, and just how they could make these huge immersive worlds on on just you know a couple of floppy disks. Um, yeah, that that still impresses me now. And um, also games like uh, I think Metal Slug, which have such a high level of pixel art. Yeah, the, the amount of detail, the number of frames. Um, yeah, we we try and match that, and uh, yeah, I can't imagine how many artists they must have had having those games back in the day. I think also, um, yeah, a lot of the developers like yeah, Capcom and Konami. I'm sure they must have been under a huge amount of pressure to produce these titles. So with very difficult, yeah, technical constraints and budget constraints and memory constraints. Um, uh, and yeah, we, we're not subjected to, to any, anything like uh, like what they were. So um, yeah, just just anything from but you know from the eighties and nineties, uh, it just really impresses me. Um, and yeah, I, I know some of those ports, uh, especially for the microcomputers, they had to be bashed out in a few weeks. Um, so uh, yeah, I got a lot of respect for those guys and, and girls, of course. I'd say what well, Gavin was saying about now running these old games in emulators, you can actually see. What they were tricks they were doing, you can see the tile maps, you can see uh, the, what run banks and stuff like that, you can see them switching. And there are still a handful of games that I've seen that I still don't understand how they've done it. It's it's <laughs> just incredible. Um, so uh, like you guys, I wrote my, my, my stuff in C with a handful with a handful of handful of uh, assembly. So the stuff that they're doing is like I can't even see how it's even possible to get that done in the amount of time you have per scan line. Um, but they're doing it anyway, and uh, th there's some incredible coders out there who just do, do amazing stuff. Uh, even with the tools that we have now, um, I don't know how you would do it. Um, I guess the, one of the big things about making games for systems now is the the cost of ROM is cheaper than it used to be because a lot of the early Mega Drive games I know that were came on two or four megabyte ROMs, um, which is a shame because you think if they had an eight megabyte ROM or sixteen bit megabyte ROM, it would have been so much better. They put uh, more more in it, but because uh, the cost of the, uh, the chips, it was just too expensive to do it. So it'd be nice to see if they could have made I don't know something like uh, Shadow Dancer or Shinobi or Eswat something like that now rather than back then, and you could see what they could have done with it if the if the cost of uh, ROM wasn't as expensive as it was. Like that, there were uh, UV erasable ones as well. So not only when you programmed it, you had to put it into a drawer and let it sit and bake under UV light for half an hour before you could reprogram the thing. So you'd be like, oh, no, I just put the wrong thing in. I have to wait another hour before I can test it out. Whereas now you can get little flash chips and just go program, 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 even have it hooked up to your computer and just have it like live sending stuff over to a cartridge. So, uh, yeah, it's so easy. We, we get it so easy nowadays. <laughs> and it's so cheap. <laughs> What's the going rate for a a cartridge these days? Getting all the chips involved and getting them on the PCB. If it's a single flash, then you're going to be talking maybe a couple of pounds, but you'll probably need a, depending on the hardware, you might need a level translator. So you'll have to go from five volt to three and a half volt because the new chips will be on three to 3.3 volts. So you'd be talking maybe a pound for that chip. And the circuit as well, so you know, maybe four or five pounds in total to get a basic cart up and running. Probably get it done cheaper, 
but because we're just dealing with small volumes, you know, we get you know ten of them made up just to try it out and see how it goes. Then be about yeah ten pounds a board, but when you get to volume, you're getting down to like a couple of pounds. Mega drive for the price of a Tesco meal deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's all the rest. I think it's the uh, the development side of things that probably co- you know that costs a lot of money, doesn't it? Uh, just making the and game the building the first it. <laughs> yeah, the man hours, putting it all together. <laughs> yeah, just sticking the labels on it. By the end of it, you make about fifty p a game or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not that bad. But yeah, speaking of, what what are we? Do we know, is there anything we can, can glean from you as to what's what's happening next? Where are we going to see you next? What are you working on at the moment? Uh, ourselves, we've got, it's so frustrating, we've got two like, high-profile projects underway, uh, looking really good, but we, we're under NDA, so can't talk about them. Ooh. Uh, Gav is working on like our biggest port yet, I would say, the, the, the real big popular platform can't, can't can you give a little clue would we get in trouble no <laughs> <laughs> about the platform during the course of the uh the, the talks here but yeah Jaguar, but, yeah, Jaguar, yeah. <laughs> we were, uh, yeah we're, we're probably a couple of weeks off before we'll, we'll announce it so the uh the, the talk here was probably yeah two weeks too early before we could have uh, maybe released some information about that's that. nice we might actually get this episode out just in time for it <laughs> Um, being announced, and then people can put it together uh, when you see it in the news afterwards. Um, but yeah, um, we've got other opportunities lined up as well. Um, so yeah, the studio's in a really good place, and uh, lots of exciting things happening. Yeah, lots of hardware sitting around, lots of things to play with, and ports uh, to work on. So yeah, we're well busy working, working lots, and having fun doing it. Well, <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic stuff like do, do you think then that actually doing all of the retro hardware stuff specifically mega drive and everything else do you think that has helped elevate your standing as an independent developer versus a lot of others like funnily enough um quang when quang and i were having a chat about his work like one of the things we discussed is that doing retro gaming is interesting in that you're kind of not fighting or competing with all the other indies which you know everyone's friends but at the same time we're all trying to ship you know we're one of the other 7,000 games that came out on Steam this week so you're trying to compete in that market so moving over to retro it's kind of it's a smaller competitive space but it's still a competitive space do you think that's helped elevate your overall like perspective or position in, in in the market as a result of that do you think like publishers and the like are, are paying closer attention to you yeah that's it i think it um gave us like a niche and uh gave us a bit of publicity uh because although matt phillips has got there before and uh what they call watermelon and a few others uh, we wanted to just put ourselves on the map by making a well you could call it a triple a mega drive game if you want to think of it like that but you know just like a real quality Mega Drive game that would have hopefully have been well received back in the eighties, nineties, and um, yeah, it, it meant that a lot of uh, YouTubers and influencers picked up on it. And since then, yeah, we had uh, various publishers come to us. So uh, yeah, Numskull came to us. Well, we were already working with Rising Star, but uh, the CEO we went to uh, Numskull, so we already had a relationship there. Uh, but yeah, we uh, just, I think it was last year or the year before, we had a, another big UK publisher come to us um, with, with these two deals uh, that we're currently working on. 
Um, so yeah, it's um, I mean that might have happened anyway. Who knows? But um, it's certainly not done us any harm, and uh, yeah, we're going to continue to support the retro platforms for a long time yet. And uh, I think the next year or two, yeah, there should be some like some real big uh, announcements from us uh, in terms of the the games and the platforms we're supporting. So um, yeah, I, I, hopefully our profile will just continue to rise, and we can continue making games and. Enjoy doing it. Fantastic. Well, I'm super, I think, speaking for us both, I think we're super excited to see what comes next. And um, we'll be sure to, for everyone listening to the podcast, we'll give we'll point them to all of your stuff and make sure they go and check out all the games that you guys have shipped already. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Very excited to see what comes from you in the future. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. If you're a regular internet user, you're probably pretty conscious about your safety while, you know, wandering around in this wonderful virtual space. Not least because you don't want people to know you've been binging all the content with my voice in it. I mean, heaven forbid. This is where having a really solid VPN or virtual private network can be a boost. By using NordVPN, you can then go about your business on the internet without worrying about you or your data being tracked. Me. I like to use it when I'm researching a new video, and it sometimes results in my going into some of the dark and damp corners of the internet. Ooh. But, you know, it also comes in handy for all the other reasons you would use a VPN, like streaming region-locked content, or occasionally buying a game from an overseas storefront, which is actually super handy in my line of work sometimes. Head on over to nordvpn.com forward slash AI and games to get a very special AI and games infused discount on a NordVPN subscription complete with a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com forward slash AI and games. The link and all the other relevant details are also available in the episode notes too. All right, and there we go. That was our interview with uh, Mike and Gavin um, from over at the Bitmap Bureau. I think that went pretty well. I really enjoyed that. Quang, how are you that feeling about that? Oh, that was great. Um, it's they're they're an amazing uh, uh, studio. The the stuff they're doing is just incredible, um, and they're so humble as well. I, yeah, I, it's yeah, it's great what they're doing. Like it is, it is quite you know from a technical perspective, it's kind of mind blowing. And you know, actually, just there was a very small thing that came up in the conversation that I I didn't want to I didn't bring it up, but at the time I was like, I hadn't even thought of this. You were talking about the control schemes and running it on the Mega Drive. I've been yeah. playing Xenocrisis for the last week or so on the Switch. Yeah. And it's a four button game on the Switch. It is. And I'm running it on two sticks. And then yeah. I'm like, oh my God, this originally shipped on the feckin' Mega Drive. How do you control yeah. this game? So you guys were talking about, oh yeah, the design affordances and how you work around only dealing with the three button. And I don't know, yeah. maybe people who are watching the video can actually see me just dying a little inside as I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm struggling to play this thing with a twin stick using actually i was playing it on a freaking pro controller um, and those i mean full credit actually their games are really tough um yeah, they're old school hard old school hard yeah like i was kind of surprised by it because i started playing it and it's like it comes in two difficulty modes easy and hard and then like i think there's a, a harder difficulty you can only unlock after unlock hard it, yeah, is completed yeah. and i'm like easy and hard 
<laughs> all right we'll give it a shot and after about 10 minutes in hard i was like oh god right okay hang on i maybe need to go and play it on easy first but yeah. playing it with the luxury of a four button face controller with shoulders and triggers as well mm-hmm. versus i try to play it on a mega drive controller yeah. yeah i could just feel my hands clawing up and that was always yeah, my problem with the mega drive my hands clawed up uh yeah i guess everyone has their favorite controller and and it's one that fit the hands well and you could press all the buttons that had been an issue um i thought the mega drive controller was quite comfortable in its kidney shape um obviously depending on how you hold it either it's face down or face or, or with your mm, thumbs yeah holding it with the um, finger yeah yeah uh if i uh, the sega satin code controller is probably one of my favorites um but i would hold out with thumb on the d-pad and fingers on the face buttons because you're playing fighting games this is the best way to do it um but yeah it all depends on the game stuff so finding the controller that's right for you and right for your hands it was very personal uh and it made sure everyone wasn't for everyone i guess no it, it took me a little bit of i think by that point i think my hands were just so used to the, the snes controller like i just mm. got used to that bean shape pad yeah, yeah. now if i try and pick it up it's like my hands are too big i just like <laughs> I seem to be going through this crisis with a lot of consoles where I'm just like, I don't like this controller. I don't like this controller. Like, um, uh, I've got the 8-bit dough for my PC yeah. and I quite like that. That's a nice controller. Um, yeah. But uh, I've, I've discovered I hate all PlayStation controllers. <laughs> this is a recurring. Yeah, <laughs> Same for me. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the PlayStation controllers. I'll take the Xbox ones over the PlayStation ones. Sure. I, I but... think the Xbox controllers are, th- like, that's why I like this, the 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 pro switch controller because it's like oh this yeah. almost feels like an xbox pad like the that white xbox 360 pad they they, they just solved it <laughs> like that's it yeah. like every time they're just adding more bells and whistles that's it they solved the controller problem as far as i'm concerned yeah. um, i'm but I'm, I'm not a fan of uh offset analog sticks so right. weirdly i like the playstation's analog sticks to the the, the the same height but i hate the playstation's d-pad it's terrible for yeah. fireballs and things like that so it's a mix and match funnily enough i i did i remember like i will probably have a co- we, you and you and me will need to have a street fighter <laughs> conversation at some point because i think that'd yeah. be good podcast content but i was playing so street fighter 5 i remember playing on pc it's the only game on steam i've ever refunded because i was so angry with how wow. shoddy that street fighter 5 release was but yep. i ended up buying the super arcade every character and skin edition on the ps4 like mm-hmm. or actually it was on my ps5 and i'm trying to play it on my playstation controller i'm like i hate this this is terrible and then i've been playing street fighter 6 on the xbox controller and it's it's not there it's bugging me and you know that way i'm now like do i do i need to get my my first arcade stick do i need to because i've never i've never actually owned an arcade stick but i'm i've always been able to figure out how to just play fighting games on their respective controllers but i feel like none of them are particularly good for fighting games right now no, mm. no. Uh, uh, I I grew up playing Street Fighter in the arcades, so I need a fighting stick to play on the streets. Properly. On the streets, although you know, it, it we spent many hours on the Super Nintendo version, so I, 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 I can play on pad, but it's a very different type of play. I might because I map the medium text to the shoulder buttons and the face buttons light and heavy, mm-hmm. which means I rely on those more than the mediums. Um, that for for many years messed me up because i realized i wasn't using the mediums correctly because it's like oh because you can use medium kicks a lot to give you a lot of range or like actually like you can (laughs) 
do a one two with a light medium or something that you wouldn't think to do versus like a light heavy and yeah, yeah. it took me a long time to kind of like unlearn some very bad habits i think this was during my street fighter 4 era where i was that was the last time i tried to get really good at a fighting game um who knows street fighter 6 it might happen uh not get a stick get, get a stick. stick all right fine 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 well we'll come back to this at some point i, I imagine but um but yeah so yeah. thanks once Rose. again to mate and gavin for coming and joining us um i really enjoyed having a chat with them and also just it for me the other funny thing was when there was certain aspects of the conversation where i could just see it creeping up on your face um <laughs> where it's like oh we talked we talked about this on our episode and you could just see you like yep Mm-hmm. Yeah. like the bit about trying to put the logistics together of the of like yeah. here's one copy of the game so the control we've got the cartridge we put that in and we got the sleeve we got the thing and then stick it in the envelope and everything else and i could just see you like uh-huh yeah uh-huh uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. flashbacks um, but you're not de- you're not dealing with that issue this time are you you no, said no no, no. Uh, that's someone else's problem now uh <laughs> Just the joys of the just just the joys of making the game. Just like ninety nine percent of game developers. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, is it is did you, did you is there anything from that conversation that you learn or you gleam from? Is there anything like because you said yourself like oh, these guys are, are very well versed in this space? Like, do you feel like there's something you still learn from hanging around with them? Not necessarily in the podcast, but even in other spaces, just chatting with them, like kind of their approach. Yeah. Or, it- it's obviously interesting to talk to other people and see how they're doing it. Um, Cause uh, doing homebrew, especially it's quite a, a solitary uh, adventure. Um, yeah. You have the online chats and stuff with other people uh, and me asking questions and stuff, but the, the nitty gritty of it, you don't really get to it unless you talk to a person in person. Yeah. Talk to a person in person. No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> talk to them face to face and, and then, yeah, just just seeing how other people deal with the process and and deal with the systems and stuff and deal with the community and and deal with just everything to do with something that you're not normally do. But I, I'm imagine the same is it's the same with working on in AAA and and and, and doing other indie stuff. Yeah, you, you you work in your own little studio and you do your things the way your studio does it. You don't really hear how other people do it as well. It's quite interesting. Yeah, to hear that. like uh, funnily enough, I had I had a similar experience doing console port work at one point when i'm literally just like okay we're we're shipping a game to this platform for the first time and you've got documentation it's not great it's prone to change it often gets very out of date because they keep updating the api every 12 minutes um but also you're under nda and so you can't i remember a couple of times on projects just like i am really flummoxed trying to figure out how to get this feature to be implemented and who do you talk to um And I won't name names, but I did actually manage to reach out to a couple of people on Twitter via DM that we that we both know, some mutual friends who'd also shipped to those platforms. And they were like, oh, hey, here's a few things that you should know. And one of, one of them was a, was a game changer. Like literally, he told me this one thing and he said, oh, by the way, don't ever try and do this using this approach that's available in the API. Don't ever do it that way because it will never work. You've got to do it this way and configure this with this configuration and parameters. And I was like, oh my God, I'd spent like a week trying to figure this out or two weeks even trying to figure that out. And I was losing the will to live. And you're like, who do I talk to about these issues? So yeah, I imagine, I think that's to me, one of the most scariest aspects of doing homebrew is, you know, it, it, it's such a small community. And if you're on your own, then you're like, oh, how do I do this? I don't understand what's going on. And, and uh, anyway, um, <sighs> 
this is just giving me PTSD from <laughs> we have a big shout out and a lot of love to all you porting houses out there who do all the hard work of taking our busted games and getting them running on other platforms we salute you <laughs> <laughs> all right I think with that we should bring this episode to a close uh, thank you for watching and or uh, listening to us here on Branching Factor episode 007. Um, once again, be sure to rate our podcast on your platform of choice. Uh, this helps us a lot, allows people to know that we're out here and they should be listening to us. And of course, do, do the likes and the shares on the, all the appropriate platforms too. If you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to reach out to us. Our email address is branchingfactor at aiingames.com. You can also, we've got a brand new shiny, where actually I think Branching Factor is about to roll out more social media platforms. We just got our own Instagram. I believe we're going to have a Facebook page pretty soon and probably a Twitter handle too, which will update very soon. Um, but if you ha if it's not on Twitter yet, just check out AI and Games because we're also publishing over there. And of course, a thank you to um, our crowdfunding community over on Patreon, the AI and Games Patreon, who support all this shenanigans and make sure that uh, we are able to still come here and do these silly episodes because y'all love listening to them. And uh, a shout out, of course, to our top tier patrons, uh, so that would be to Scuppip Up, Bernard Werner and Michael Russell. They are top tier supporters and they get a shout out at the end of every episode. But in the meantime, if you want to listen to episodes ad free, if you want to listen to them in early access, if you also want to get the podcast preamble and all the bonus content, then you head on over to aiingames.com forward slash Patreon. And that's, you can find out how for just a couple of bucks, you can support us and everything we're doing both on AI and games and on Branching Factor. And yeah, I think that's it. Are we good? Are we good to play the music, Quang? Play the music. We're going to play the music. Well, Quang, thank you very much, sir, uh, for joining us on this episode. It's been a blast to catch up with you. And of course, a thank you once again to the team over at the Bitmap Bureau. Yeah, that's it. Branching Factor signing off. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson, with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yun. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge, and the logo and thumbnail art is thanks to Helen O'Dell. Special thanks to Shraddha Gumta and Phoebe Trigg for their additional production support, and of course, to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we'll be back.